and we get to do it together. But Father, I pray that every moment of our lives would be like that, that it would be an offering to you, Lord, aware of your presence and aware of the reality that no matter where we're at, what we're doing, in that moment, we were made to worship you. We were created to make much of you, our creator. So Father, like, please, just again today, Lord, it's the same, I, I, it's the same prayer every week, Lord, again today, that you'd be gracious to us and that you would transform us from glory to glory to ever-increasing glory for your glory, all for you, for the name and the renown of Jesus. We love you, Lord. Please just continue to speak to us this morning. Satisfy our souls in you that you would be honored and glorified among us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen, you guys can have a seat. Good morning. How you guys doing? Good, we actually got some cold weather here in Ohio. It's not 70 degrees in January like it was last week, crazy. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Mark chapter six or thereabouts. Um, as most of you know, uh, we're just in week two here, but at the beginning of the year, we started a uh, plan of reading through the scriptures together as a church. Uh, we're just reading one chapter a day, five days a week. Um, if you have not joined in that yet, we would encourage you to do so out on the connect table. Uh, you can find uh, a Bible reading plan uh, that everybody's going to be on. Also, you can find these little uh, bookmarks that will kind of help you. Uh, we call it the look journal. Um, but some questions to ask just to help you look to see in the scriptures some kind of questions to ask and things to look for as you read and just knowing that uh, everybody is journaling through that together. Uh, this past week we read through uh, Mark chapters uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 and so every week uh, for the most part unless the Lord leads otherwise I'm going to kind of be preaching from uh, some of those chapters and again, this week, just like last, I, when we started this, um, I was planning on just kind of zeroing in on one specific passage, but, but again, there's just some things that kind of over the entire swath of, this, uh, of these five chapters that I just wanted to uh, hit on today. And, and I just want to encourage us here from the beginning again that, guys, the Word of God will absolutely change your life. It will change your life. It, it is um, inspired, inerrant. Um, it has all authority, and it is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and it will change your life. And I just want to share real quickly here, just as a little bit of an aside before I kind of get into the message, but just a, a study that I came across this uh, past week that was done by the Center for Bible Engagement, and they surveyed 40,000 people, which is a pretty... Uh, decent sized gr group of people and they were doing this study for some other uh, reasons um, regarding uh, you know how much people read scripture and stuff but they came uh, they kind of bumped into something I guess you would say as they were as they were doing this study and and here's what it was it's pretty interesting that is it when people just engage the Bible one time a week uh, whether that's on Sunday mornings or just or just by themselves, there's really it, it, the the difference is uh, that it makes is kind of negligible. It really doesn't make that big of a difference when you engage it two times a week. Um, not a whole lot of difference in your life. Uh, when you engage it three times a week, there seems to be like a little blip on the radar, that if you're in the scriptures three times a week, it, it, it tends to make a little bit of a difference in your life. But what was interesting, and here was kind of the insight, is that they found that when people are intentionally engaging the scriptures at least four times a week, that their spiritual growth just shoots off the chart. 
And again, what you might expect is that one time a week a little bit, two times a little bit, three times a little bit, four times, just incrementally more. But that when you're in it at least four times a week, so the majority of your days in a week, uh, that they just found all sorts of things that took off in people's lives. For example, they found this to be statistically true, that when people engage the scriptures at least four times a week, um, that there's just a sense of feeling lonely and by themselves decreased by 30%. Anger issues decreased by 32%. Bitterness in relationships, whether it's in marriage or family or coworkers or whatever, bitterness dropped by 40%. Uh, even addiction to alcohol decreased by 57%. Um, addiction to viewing pornography dropped by 61%. Um, feeling spiritually stagnant, which I, I find is where so many Christians live at, they just feel stagnant, and there's a direct correlation between that and getting in the Word of God, that when you engage the Word of God at least four times a week, that um, that feeling of spiritual stagnation drops by 60%. And on the flip side, there's a lot of positives, that when you engage the Scriptures at least four times a week, uh, that people are 200 times more likely to actually share their faith. And they're 230 uh, time percent more likely um, uh, to be discipling someone, to be in engaged in personal discipling relationships. And so, anyway, I just found that that study interesting, and uh, uh, and encouraging, and compelling. And again, it's nothing that the Bible doesn't already say about the Bible. That if you get into it, it changes you. But I just wanted to encourage you with that this morning as we get going. And here's what I want to, here's what I want to talk about this morning from these passages. There's kind of a theme, there's a lot going on here in these five chapters of Mark. But the thing that really kind of caught my attention this past week as I was reading through it, and again, I'm, I'm reading and journaling through these every day just like you guys are, is, is this idea of unbelief, of unbelief that lives inside of our hearts. And how Jesus Christ came to absolutely destroy that unbelief. That that unbelief is at the root of every other sin. And I'll kind of talk about that more as we get into this. And I apologize for this analogy, but I'm just in the midst of, this is, you know, week three or four of basketball right now. I'm helping coach Ephraim's eighth grade team. Uh, two of my other boys are in it. And so it's just week to week. It's just, we got a lot of basketball going on. And so I'm constantly thinking in basketball uh, kind of terms. But do you guys know what a box and one is? A box and one defense is. Uh, the box and one defense, just for the record, it's weak when somebody plays it. But anyway, what it is is, is if you've got a team that has one guy that's really kind of their main scorer, like their standout scorer, sometimes teams, in order to uh, kind of counter that on defense, they'll run what's called a box and one, where four guys will kind of create a box, just kind of play a zone, they'll kind of play an area, but you'll have one guy that will just hound that one opponent that will just hound that one opponent that's really good. And so the, the idea being that whenever he catches the ball, he's not just going against one guy, he's going against, he's going against four or five guys. That if he actually gets the ball, that he's got the guy that's just hounding him, but also you've got the other four players kind of playing zone, and they're all just focused on stopping, on stopping that one guy. And, uh, and, and again, I wish that I could come up with a better analogy, but it's all I got right now. But, but the idea here this morning is that Jesus is running a box and one on an opponent that lives inside each and every single one of our hearts. And that opponent is unbelief. And unbelief, guys, is not just a lack of faith. It is, it is evil. It is rebellion against Almighty God. It is, it is believing the lie. Unbelief is believing the lie that God is not good and that he will not do what he says that he will do. 
And so Jesus in these passages this morning, I just kind of see him just confronting, going around in a box and one on unbelief over and over and over again. Not just in, again, not just in the hearts of the religious rulers, not just in the hearts of the Pharisees who we, who we know were kind of against him, not just in the hearts of, of, the, of the masses, but even in the hearts of the disciples. And so it's something that for us this morning is, is very important because even though many of us here would, would say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior, I'm telling you that unbelief, until Jesus comes back, and the Bible says in 1 John that when we see him, we will be like him. But until that day, there is still unbelief that runs around in your heart. And I believe that through the scriptures this morning and seeing what, how Jesus confronts it and kind of, and kind of how he deals with it, um, as we look at this this morning, I pray that we would work with Jesus to put to death unbelief to put to death unbelief in our hearts because it is the root of every sort of evil um, and uh, spiritual stagnation that, that comes about in our hearts. So first of all, here's what I want to look at. I wanna, first of all, I want to look at uh, kind of the nature of our, own, of our unbelief. And, and specifically, there's, there's some ways and some very specific metaphors that Jesus uses to describe our unbelief. And so uh, when we can know kind of uh, that thing that makes us weak, we can kind of know that kryptonite that gets us, and again, in this case, is unbelief, um, we're better equipped to kind of deal with it and to recognize it. And there's a couple of things that Jesus says uh, about unbelief that I think are helpful for us understanding. So first of all, the nature, the nature of unbelief is this, is that when Jesus explained it several times in these scriptures, as we'll, as we'll look at in just a second, he, he usually explains it with this image, imagery that pertains to the condition of your heart. Imagery that pertains to the condition of your heart. So let me give you one first of all. The first one is this, is that an unbelieving heart is a heart that is far from Jesus. An unbelieving heart is a heart that is far from Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 7. Okay, and then in verse six. So uh, the Pharisees, uh, the religious rulers are kind of getting on him about, you know, not following some of their ceremonial laws and, you know, washing outwardly because they believe that that made them right with God. And, and then Jesus says this to them in Mark chapter seven, verse six. He said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? So he's saying the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied about this group of people uh, about roughly 500 years before uh, this moment that he's in right now with them. But he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites? As it is written, here's what Isaiah said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is what? Their heart is far away from you. Now again, a hypocrite in scripture, you guys have heard me say this before, a hypocrite is not just not doing what you want to do. That's called being human. And, 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 and I'm not trying to soften that too much. It's, it's sin, okay? But just sin in and of itself, not doing what we know that we should do, is not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending to believe something that you don't actually believe. Again, it's this idea of wearing a mask. It's pretending to be something that you're actually not. The Pharisees and the religious rulers and many people in our area today, we, we play this game. We come to church. We pretend like we believe, but we don't actually believe. And Jesus says what's actually happening there is the problem is, is that your heart is far from him. Even though we may honor him with our lips, with our words, with the things that we say, we draw near to him. We pretend like we love him, but we don't actually love him. Jesus says that's unbelief. And he describes it as a heart being far from him. Secondly, he describes unbelief as a hard heart. Look at chapter 6, verse 52, also chapter 8, verse 17. In chapter 6, verse 52, what had happened here is that Jesus had just fed the 5,000, and then he sends the disciples away across uh, the boat at night, um, 
and kind of a you know, pretty popular story in the scriptures, and, and Jesus is up on the mountain. He kind of sees them struggling through the storm, going across the lake, and then he comes walking to them on the water, and the disciples are all freaked out. They don't know, they don't know what's going on, and then Jesus says to them in uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 50, he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, verse 51, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Now listen, verse 52, and we'll, we'll come back and talk about this some more, but verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. So again, the story that happens right before this storm on the lake is that Jesus had just fed these 5,000 5, people, but there was more that he wanted to, them to get about the loaves than just merely having their needs, net in the, their needs met in that moment. What he wanted them to understand was that he's God and that he's good and that he's going to take care of them. And he didn't just you, you know, uh, provide for them as well as, as thousands of other uh, men and women and children out in the wilderness you know, by doing this miracle of, of the loaves and the fishes. He didn't just provide for them there so that, that he could let them die in a storm. But that he was gonna continue to take care of them. But he says that their hearts were hardened. They didn't believe, they didn't believe in who he was. Same thing over in chapter eight, verse 17. He describes unbelief as not understanding and as having a hardened heart. Chapter 8, verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, again, these are the disciples. These are not just the masses. These are not people hanging out on the fringes. These are not the scribes and the Pharisees who were scheming to kill him back in dark little corners of their world. These are his chosen 12. Jesus said to them, verse 17 of chapter 8, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive and understand? He says, are your hearts hardened? Are your hearts hardened? Unbelief is like having a heart that's far from Jesus. Unbelief is like having a hard heart. It's not soft, it's not, it's not sensitive. And thirdly, Jesus describes unbelief as having a heart that is also deaf and blind. And you see this in the very next verse in chapter eight. After he says in verse 17, are your hearts hard in verse 18? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember what I just did? Having a hard heart is like having a heart that is far from Jesus. I'm sorry, having an unbelieving heart is having a heart that's far from Jesus. It's like having a hard heart. It's like having a heart that is deaf and blind. You know, I'm sure that we've all heard stories or maybe we even know somebody who's overcome the physical handicap of either being deaf or blind. Um, and you know, and those stories are always very encouraging, and we're we're amazed at people's perseverance. But, but what Jesus is describing here, this spiritual deafness, this spiritual blindness, that comes from our that comes from our unbelief. Like, if you can just imagine for a second, what it would be like, like right now. Just close your eyes with me for a second, okay? Work with me here this morning. Just close them. And. And then also pretend, and I'm not going to have you stick your fingers in your ear because you won't be able to hear what I'm saying, but, but like imagine that you can't hear as well too. One thing's for sure, I know for me, you can open them back up, but like would it not slow you down if you had your physical senses dulled in this way where you could not see, where you could not hear? Not only would it slow you down, but it would be a little bit scary, wouldn't it? that you wouldn't know maybe what's coming around, you wouldn't hear somebody sneaking up behind you, you wouldn't be able to see if anything's coming, coming at you. And guys, when we allow unbelief 
to rule and reign in our hearts. Again, not just, when I talk about unbelief, I'm not just talking about that God exists. Um, there's a great quote from, from R.C. Sproul. He says, it is one thing to believe in God, it's quite another to believe God. Let me say that again. It's one thing to believe in God, it's quite another to actually believe God. I would assume that most of you are here this morning because you believe in God. You believe that he exists. That's not the faith that Jesus is talking about. There's a difference between believing in him and actually believing him. Again, we can say that we believe in him, but do we actually believe him? Do we trust him? And if we don't, it's like our hearts, spiritually, we're, we're blind and we're deaf. And we're gonna be slow, and we're gonna live in fear, and we're gonna live in anxiety if we don't actually believe what he says. And the first thing, I, again, the reason I'm pressing this point is that, guys, I want us to first see that unbelief, it's a big deal. And it's not something that's okay just to, to, to let kind of run free in our hearts and our lives. It needs to be put to death. And that's exactly why Jesus came. Carrie, if you can throw Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, again, just to give some more uh, biblical context to this. But this is the writer of Hebrews, again, saying these exact same things about unbelief in our hearts. Again, not just in the fact that God exists, but his goodness in who he is. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. He's talking now about the people of Israel when they were coming out, uh, coming out of Egypt and, and into the promised land. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was pr provoked with that generation and said, listen, they always go astray where? In their heart. See, all outward disobedience, it first starts in the heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, what? Unbelieving heart. Unbelief is nothing to trifle with. The Bible calls it evil. And it will lead you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened Again, another image we just touched on in Mark. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And what is that sin? Unbelief. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. But guys, every morning, I, I like what John Piper says. I think I've shared this with you before. He said, every morning I wake up and the devil is sitting on my face. And it feels like that sometimes. And the thing that the devil is trying to get us to do is ultimately to not believe in the goodness of God. And so those are some of the images that Jesus gives to describe our unbelief, that our heart might be far from him, might be hard, um, and that our hearts are blind and deaf. But also Jesus is going to unpack um, uh, some of the consequences or results of our unbelief. And I've kind of already touched on this already, but go back to Mark chapter 7. Again, look with me here. What he continues to say in this section, again, it's in this flow of thought of him confronting the religious rulers and telling them that they have hearts that are far from them. Um, and then he goes on down in chapter 7, verse 14, and it says, and he called the people to him again, and he said, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable, and Jesus says to them, verse 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see? Again, that same imagery. Whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. Listen, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. 
and thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Listen, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they are what defile a person. The re- again, the reason our unbelief is such a big deal is, and this is not an overstatement, literally every evil thing you could ever possibly imagine springs from a root of unbelief in your heart. Again, not unbelief, not being that God exists, but that he's good and that he's trustworthy and that he deserves to be trusted when he commands us, when he commands us to trust him. Every disobedient action in your life this is where Christians get so messed up, and this is where we get, we get caught into the web of legalism, is we do something bad. We have an outward addiction, and so the thing that we try to repent of is we, don't do that, do something good. Don't do this, do this. Don't look at pornography, don't drink, don't smoke, don't, don't cuss, don't do this. I'm just, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do the right thing. And our repentance does not run deep enough and where we need to repent of is, yes, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying any of those things are okay, but where we need to repent of is in our hearts, first, of the fact that we don't believe in God and that he can actually satisfy us. You've got to first trust in the goodness of God. I want, I'm reading just an excellent book right now. I, I have not finished it yet. It's by a guy named Jay Stringer. It's called Unwanted. Listen, the subtitle is How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. And he says something that is just, it's so good and it goes right in line with what I'm talking about here about how we have to first repent of the root of unbelief. But, but he identifies six points of pain in people's life that is really the thing that usually drives them towards pornography. But, and I would argue any sort of addiction, okay? No matter what it is. But I, I just wanna share with you three of them, okay? And these first uh, three of the six points of pain that drive us to pornography or whatever the addiction might be um, are these first three points are, are areas of unbelief. And he says they're this. He says, one, it's the false belief that my needs will not be met. And so we run to a false God, something to satisfy us, because we believe that our needs cannot be met otherwise. Number two, we believe the lie that we deserve to escape. We believe that lie, and so we run to whatever it is that we're looking to satisfy us apart from Jesus. And third, the third thing is the false belief that our efforts to resist it are futile. That they won't actually that they won't actually work and i think that's so it's so insightful of him but here's the point again it's it's unbelief or the flip side it's actually believing lies things that are not true that ultimately lead to uh addiction whether it's sexual or or otherwise because let's apply the gospel to those three things again he says we we we, we believe the lie that our needs will not be met your needs will always be satisfied in jesus he will always, listen, listen, let me, let me, he will ultimately, he will satisfy you. I'm not saying that, there, that there's not needs and desires that come at you, and in the moment, you know, you, you need to fight it and stand against it. But ultimately, not only will Jesus satisfy you, he's the only one that can satisfy you. Nothing else will. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe the lie that there's anything else that could ever satisfy you apart from Jesus. He made you. You were made to worship him. You were made to be satisfied in him. Secondly, the gospel speaks to this second lie that he says we believe, that, that we believe the lie that we deserve to escape. That's a lie. Listen, folks, we're disciples of Jesus Christ. 
We're disciples. We don't deserve to escape. The man that we call Lord and Savior and that is not only our substitute and our sacrifice, but also our example, he went to the cross. And it's right in this section that hopefully you read this past week in Mark chapter 8. Again, Peter doesn't understand the cross even though he confesses him as Christ. Mark chapter 8, look at verse 33. And he turns to to Peter because Peter's rebuking him for saying that he's got to go die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him, his disciples said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You don't deserve to escape. I don't deserve to escape. Don't believe the lie that you deserve to escape. Jesus is faithful. He will satisfy your soul. There is no temptation that has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. When the temptation comes, he will provide a way out because he's good. Amen? No excuse for sin. And thirdly, the gospel speaks to that third lie that he says we believe, that our efforts are futile. No, no, no. James says very clearly, resist, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Do you know this verse? He will flee from you. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do not believe the lie that your efforts are futile. They're not. Now, I'm not saying when you submit to God and, and, and resist, and the boom, he just flees right away. Sometimes it takes endurance. It takes perseverance. It takes calling somebody and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I need you to tell me. I need you to remind me who I am in Christ because I'm feeling overwhelmed by this temptation that's in my face right now. But don't you believe that lie that your efforts are futile. They're not. The Bible says it is true, and the Bible is always true. It's always right. And see, and again, just very quickly here, <coughs> um, guys, this goes all the way back to the beginning. That where did unbelief come from? It started in the garden, even though God had created Adam and Eve completely innocent, free from sin, but the devil came in and it started with a lie. Genesis chapter three, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say see he doesn't start with just hey take this fruit hey eat of this tree he starts with unbelief he starts with trying to plant the seeds of unbelief in her heart did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden and the, wo- and the woman like just engages him again note to self like if a talking snake ever comes to you don't listen to him <laughs> just ignore him walk away but she engages him, and you guys, and you guys know the rest of the story. Again, very quickly, Romans chapter one. Again, unbelief is the sin that gives birth to every other sin. Romans chapter one, verse twenty-four and twenty-five. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Listen, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What was the core sin? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So you guys with me so far that unbelief needs to be popped in the head, okay? Don't let it rule and reign in your life. Don't let your heart be hardened. Don't let your heart be far from Jesus. Don't let your heart be deaf, deaf and blind. Um, and the consequences are great. But here's some good news. And I've kind of said this already, but here, here, here's the good news. This is now we're shifting to the gospel, the good news portion of the message this morning. Here's the good news about your unbelief, is that Jesus Christ is absolutely determined to destroy it. That's it. That's the good news. And when 
the one with all power and all authority determines to do something, it will be done. And as we close here, I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at how Jesus confronts it in the lives of the disciples, knowing that he confronts it in the same way in our lives. First of all, Jesus is committed to consistently confronting the unbelief in your life. He is committed to consistently confronting the unbelief in your life. This is what you see all throughout this passage of Scripture. Where, un, where are these chapters? Where unbelief exists, Jesus calls it out. All the way back at the beginning of chapter 6, he's in his hometown, and, you know, they, they don't really believe who he is. And he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household, verse 6. And he marveled because of their, because of their unbelief. When he comes walking to the disciples in the midst of the storm, again, uh, it, he, he comes to them, he says, he says, take heart, don't be afraid. Why, 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 are you guys, why are you guys afraid? He's constantly calling it out. Again, when, when, uh, they, uh, uh, when they doubt, when they think that he's, that he's just simply talking about uh, bread in chapter eight, uh, because they forgot the bread, but he's talking about the leaven, the teaching of the Pharisees. He says, your hearts are hard, and he confronts it over and over again. And, then, and, and there's several other places, I'm going fast here, but, but finally, over in, in, in Mark chapter 9, I love this. And I feel like maybe um, some of us this morning, this might be a good prayer to adopt, just as your prayer for 2020, okay? But I love this story of, uh, of the dad who has a kid uh, that's oppressed uh, by uh, some demonic forces and influence. And in Mark chapter 9, you know, he's up on the Mount of Transfiguration, with, uh, with the three, Peter, James, and John, comes down the mountain. The disciples are trying to cast out a demon. They can't, they can't seem to cast it out. And he says to them in verse 16, and he asks them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and it foams and it grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, again, he's confronting unbelief. What's he say to them? Oh, you bad demon caster outers. No, he says, he answered them, oh, you faithless generation. You're faithless. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And they bring the boy to him. You know, and Jesus kind of asks, asks some questions. And then down in verse 22, um, uh, the father of, of, of the boy says, uh, it's off, it is off, often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. He said, and, then, and then the father says this, the dad says this, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And what does Jesus do? He confronts the unbelief. Right? And this guy's showing a little bit of faith. He's like, if you can do something, like, like please, like we brought him to you. We, we know that you can do something. But Jesus is not willing to let that little bit of unbelief go. Dad says, if, if you can, can you please help us? Jesus says, if I can, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. And then I love this prayer. And this is what I was referring to. This maybe needs to be somebody's prayer for 2020. And immediately, the father of the child cried out, and I love this, that Mark puts in there, this is immediately, because this is, man, this is your kid. Parents, you know there's nothing that, that makes us sick in our stomach more than when our kid is hurting and we can't help him. And this is just a dad that loves his son. And immediately, he cries out the condition of his heart. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And that, that cry, that, that prayer, that request to Jesus, that is so true, isn't it? Isn't that where so many of us live? I find myself living there over and over and over. God, I know you're good. 
God, I know you've come through for me in the past. God, you've always provided, but Lord, are you going to this time? God, I believe, help my unbelief. And again, just, just a little bit of faith, just a little bit of faith. Jesus said, that's okay, okay. And he takes, and he takes care of it and he, and he casts it out. But guys, I, I say all this because it's very important that you understand that as a disciple, sometimes in our lives, even though we're believers, even though we might be disciples of Christ, how many of you guys have ever gone through seasons where it's just been confusing? Anybody? Where you're just not sure what exactly God is trying to do. And you're not sure why the fog isn't lifting. You're why, not sure why, why you've got to go through another storm. And you're not sure why, you know, you've, you've lost your peace again, even though you had it a little bit ago. And now, and now it seems to be gone. And one thing that I think will help us, is, help us is, is, is if we understand that no matter what comes at us in our life, everything that God allows into our life, I believe one of the things that he's trying to accomplish is to always get us to believe in him and that he's good, that he's constantly trying to strengthen our faith, and that when God does something in your life, it's not just about providing for you in that moment, it's about trusting him in the future, that he's going to be faithful. Again, this was the deal, you have these two stories in here, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And the first time, again, I already touched on it, that you know, it's, it's after the storm, and it says that their hearts were still hardened. They were freaked out when Jesus came walking to them on the water because the, their hearts were hardened. They did not understand the lesson that they were supposed to understand about the loaves. Again, Jesus providing in that moment wasn't just about that he can provide. It's about who he is. And see, when we talk about true faith and as, as opposed to unbelief, we're not just talking about what God can do. We're talking about his nature and his character, about who he is. I had a story of somebody this past week, uh, I won't say who, but it, it was, the story he was telling me was a story or a circumstance that I've seen in my life over and over and over again. And he was talking about how things were a little bit tight financially and how um, just out of nowhere, it was a situation where they actually, even though things were tight financially, they actually had uh, enough money to, you know, get what they needed to get what they needed to get, but um, how uh, this person that they were buying this, this, this stuff from, he ended up just actually giving them their money back and just said, here, I just want to give it to you. Just, you know, you know j just, just take it. And he was sharing this with me and I was telling him, okay, now, now why did God do that? Why did God provide that little extra financial blessing to you in that moment? I guarantee it wasn't a, a super big amount that he got back. It's not just about the amount. It's not just about, you know, that $100 or $200 or whatever. It's about showing, he wants to show him that he sees him, that he sees their situation, and that he's going to take care of them. And when God provided the loaves and the fishes, he wanted the disciples to know that when a storm came in their life, don't let that storm that's on the outside get into the inside. Because I took care of you before, I'm going to take care of you again. It was about, you know, over in chapter 8 with, with the same thing after he feeds the 4,000, that he begins to talk to them about, about the leaven of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And, and the leaven is just their, their, their teaching. It's their, it's their unbelief is the leaven. And Jesus is saying, watch, watch out for this, this leaven that tries to get into your hearts. And, and it's, it's actually a pretty funny story in, in Mark chapter 8, you know, uh, he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they go, oh, dude, Peter, you forgot the bread. Dude, you, 
all those baskets that were left over from the feeding of the four, you forgot the bread. Peter's like, you know, don't, don't look at me. I think Andrew was supposed to get it. Andrew's like, don't look at me. I told Bartholomew to get it. Man, it's always Bartholomew. You know, you just, you can't depend on him for anything. And they start arguing with each other about the baskets. And Jesus going, I, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. But see, when, when, when our hearts are hardened, when we have unbelief in our hearts, we're not going to understand we're not going to understand what he's, ultimately, what he's ultimately trying to talk about. And guys, I want you to know this morning that all that Jesus Christ has done and ever will do in your life is to prove to you, even though he does not have to, he absolutely is not required to do this, but it is to prove to you over and over and over and over again that you can trust him you can trust him you can trust him and I ask you this morning are you believing in God or are you believing God are you believing that he loves you and that he's, and that he's going to take care of you worship team you can come up and we're going to close and just quickly the ultimate way that Jesus destroys unbelief is by going to the cross. And that's ultimately, again, because at the cross he bore all the sin of humanity. Um, and again, at the root of sin isn't just outward sinful actions, wicked actions, but it's an unbelieving heart that does not delight in God, that is not satisfied in God, and doesn't believe in his goodness. And three times throughout this section, if you guys notice this, this section is kind of, of Scripture is kind of built around these three times in chapters 8, 9, and 10 when Jesus predicts that he's going to go to the cross and the disciples, and the disciples don't get it. In chapter 8, again, you know, they get it right. They get the answer right. They say, you know, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you know, you're, you're, you're the Christ. But he doesn't understand what that means because just a few verses later, he's... He's, re he's rebuking Jesus for saying that he's got to die. Again, over in, over in chapter 9, that um, it says that uh, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he's killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand it. Their hearts were still hardened. And again, over in chapter 10, for the third time, he says to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and they will spit on him and they will flog him and they will they will kill him and after three days he will rise and still and still they don't get it and the thing that Jesus ultimately came to destroy on the cross to destroy the root of all sorts of evil he came to destroy the spirit of unbelief these lies that the devil tries to get us tries to get us to believe you know, and I said in the beginning, all these lies that came from Adam and Eve in the beginning and, and the serpent wiggling his way in here. Because they did not, because Adam and Eve did not trust in God's word, but they instead they took and they tasted of the one tree that God commanded them not to. But Jesus Christ came as the second Adam, as the better Adam. And because he totally trusted his father, he partook and he tasted of the one tree that nobody else wanted to taste of the cross in order to show that God can always be trusted you know guys it's as you read 
the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of Mark, most of the times the disciples are not set up as examples of what we should do, but they're usually set up as examples of what we should not do. And all of the disciples, they don't ultimately get it until after the resurrection. They don't ultimately get it until after Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And I think that too many times in our lives, many of us live um, with this idea that it's okay to be a pre-resurrection disciple of Christ. That it's okay to live as the disciples lived where we're constantly doubting, where we're constantly not getting it. And I just want to clarify something. Guys, we live on the other side of the resurrection. We live on the other side of the resurrection. He's good. He, he, like, it, it, it's no longer an excuse to say, well, you know, the disciples didn't always get it and I didn't always get it. That is unbelief in your heart. And you need to repent of it. Because guys, God has never, ever, ever failed. He's never failed. And the greatest way that he proved that is by doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Namely, I'm going to the cross, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna be buried for three days, but on the third day, I'm gonna rise again. And he did it. And we sit here, you know, 2,000 years later, living in light of that. There is no excuse to let unbelief rule and reign in your heart. Would you guys just bow your heads with me for just a second? And I just want to give just an opportunity before we come and take communion here this morning just to search your heart. As Scott said, communion here at Mercy Hill, it's important to us, but it's not because actually taking of the bread and the cup, like we don't think that that saves you, but we do believe that what that represents is the only thing that can save you. And I just want to give you a minute here to search your heart and if the Spirit is revealing anything to you this morning, hopefully to repent of any unbelief that exists there. To ask Jesus to take it away, to ask him to, to put it under his feet. To ask him to run the box and one on it, to completely shut it down so that it would no longer hold sway in your life. And if you find that your heart this morning is in any way hard or far from Jesus or deaf or blind, just tell him that. Just tell him that. And also, if you're in a state of confusion this morning, like the disciples found themselves in so many times throughout these, these chapters that we read this past week, I just want to ask you, again, confusion can come from other areas, but usually it comes into our life because of unbelief. That you don't believe that God loves you that you don't believe that he's good, that you don't believe that he's gonna provide for you again, that you don't believe that he'll forgive you again. But guys, he will. He's faithful. So Father, I just ask the Lord as we come this morning uh, and we partake of the bread and the cup, that Father, we would come just with just a new sense of awe and just a new sense, a fresh sense of gratitude for what you have done for us. And God, I do pray that in our lives that you would destroy every ounce of unbelief that rules and reigns among us. Because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there is nothing that you cannot do. There is nothing that you cannot do. And Lord, I pray that you would do among us something that brings you honor and glory and that points to the fact that you are our Savior and that you're good. Glorify your name in our lives, Lord. 
I pray that we can continue to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.